You are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the biggest things that keeps Christians, keeps you, keeps me, from joining in gospel mission with both feet. I wonder, I wonder what you would answer that tonight. What is the biggest thing that keeps Christians, you and me, from joining in gospel mission or jumping into the pool of missionality with two feet? What, what, would, what would scare you off? What would keep you from sharing and speaking and making a witness of the resurrected Jesus to people who are dwelling in darkness? Honestly, for, for me and from our passage tonight, I think we'll very clearly see that a lot of it has to do with just our own fear. And you can fill in the blank of what we're fearful of. But if we're doing a little bit of context here with our passage, we need not really look too further than what we saw last week as a reason for why we would be fearful about jumping onto Jesus's mission to being witnesses with both of our feet, or as a church with both of our collective feet. If you remember from chapter 17, verse 32 and 34, we saw people who believe the gospel. And isn't that what we all want? We would love to hear people respond in faith to the message of the gospel. But we also saw two different responses, if I could say it this way. The response that we want on our uh, trip to gospel missionality is only one-third of the possible responses we could see. The other two-thirds of the responses that we can see as we go about talking about Jesus, whom we have spiritually seen raised from the dead with our own spiritual eyes, is that they could wait and see. Remember, there were people that are like, you know what, I want to hear about this again. Give us another week. Come back and tell me about the good news of the gospel one more time. We'll see. Or there's also, maybe even more fearful, those who out and out reject. Or from verse 32, and we saw there some mocked, some ridiculed, As we'll see in our passage tonight, uh, some really had some harsh things to say, but this is nothing new. We know this, this kind of hostility, this kind of persecution. It's what has driven missionality. It hasn't stopped God on his mission, right? The thing that we fear the most, the the mocking, the rejection, that actually hasn't slowed Jesus's mission. It's actually pushed it forward, and yet we still fear it. And what we've learned from this entire series, as indicated by our little subtitle here, really this is a bunch of imperfect people beholding Jesus's perfect work. But it still begs the question, why are we so fearful? What is keeping us from jumping into Jesus's mission with both feet? Really, uh, when it comes to those who wait and see or those who reject or those who believe, uh, I, I think one thing I personally fear, and what we'll see in this passage, is that we fear because we don't have control. I can't control who's going to reject. I can't control who's going to wait and see. And I surely can't control who's going to believe. And I have reasons for wanting to be able to control all three, Right? There's a bunch of people that I love that I have a, a seemingly unbearable burden for that I want to believe, but they do nothing but reject. And at best, at best, there are times that they say, you know what, I'll just wait and see. And we get nervous, don't we? We get fearful because we can't control their heart. We want them to believe. We want them to know eternal life. And we certainly don't want them to have to pay for their own sin. 
as God's true justice requires. But also, to be very honest, especially as a pastor, I'm fearful that I can't control who's going to believe. Remember Fred? I pick on Fred. If your name's Fred, I'm sorry. Fred is this imaginary guy that I pick on who's obnoxious and who comes to church and likes it, and we have to deal with him. You guys know Fred. Fill in your blank for whoever else is that person for you. But I can't control it when Fred believes, can I? Fred comes in with all of his baggage. Fred comes in with all of his burdens. Fred comes in with a lot of help. He has very little to contribute to church. And he comes and yet he believes. He's the one that Jesus rescues and we all have to kind of put up with Fred. The reality is we're all Fred. We just don't like to admit it. But Fred, I, I wish I had control over Fred's life. I wish I had control over Fred's faith, but I can't. I don't. And it bothers me. I mean, what if God really does change our city? And like, because uh, we, all, we all pray for a New Testament church, right? So what if we, we pray for our city and like the New Testament, right out of the gates, Jesus adds to our church 3,000 people? I'll be honest, that's a problem I really don't want to have. I don't want to have to have that. I can't control it. I can't manage it all. And even that is a cause for fear. Probably the reason I would say, hey, Probably not all of you should be believing this stuff. We do this. Here's a big idea I want us to see tonight. Because, of, because God is fully sovereign over his gospel mission, we can fearlessly join in. Because God is sovereign over his gospel mission, and that's good news, we can fearlessly join in. We can play a part without the burden of fear. For children keeping score, you can just say, don't be afraid. Make disciples. Don't be afraid. Make disciples. Let's read here chapter 18, verses 1 through 17, and we'll get busy with the text. After Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And they opposed him and reviled him. He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go only to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have a reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Paul leaves one uh, notorious city and goes to another notorious city in Corinth. Paul leaves a smart city known for its intellect to another city that was known for a whole host of other things. In fact, we have two 
uh, uh, letters in our Bibles, and there's reason to believe that there's a lot more than two that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, uh, named for this city, Corinth. Uh, the first and second Corinthians uh, were written to this city. We know from these passages and also from history that uh, Corinth, which begins with the sea, is known for three other things that begin with the sea. Helpful for reminder for us, for especially those raised in Baptist context. We need the alliteration. We have to have it. Commerce, connectivity, and carnality. Commerce is a huge trade city. It was a connected city. They didn't have iPhones, but they had the newest form of communication and technology that kept the city. They were up on news. News traveled quickly in Corinth to and from, and they were known for their carnality. And if news traveled fast, then maybe we can imagine even some of the things we heard in terms of the immoral nature of Corinth uh, to be understated. Corinth was a well-known, carnal, immoral church or city, and it bled into the church. Paul leaves the idolatrous Athens and goes into a place that we might even consider to be even darker. Paul leaves, remember, with a huge burden on his heart from Athens and moves into Corinth and has a lot to minister to as well. Paul would grow in his love for the church in Corinth but it would take a good deal of ministry to get him there. What we see out of the gate, though, in the middle of this city that has its own immoral problems is that there are things here that help us to understand how we can encourage each other in ministry, even in hard places, even in places that that seem too dark. Uh, So right out of the gate here, uh, I want to just point out three things that encourage us in gospel ministry. Three things that are going to help lighten the load for Paul in his ministry here that get his ministry right out of the gate uh, off to a good start here in Corinth. Uh, The first thing I want to see here, push this thing eight times. Things that encourage us in gospel ministry is gospel fellowship. Gospel fellowship. Paul in Corinth found a Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla who had recently come from Italy. Paul and Aquila and Priscilla had a lot in common, and his heart resonated real quick, even to the point of hospitality with Aquila and Priscilla. A Jew from Rome, pushed out, converted to Christianity. They had so much that was lining up for them, not to mention, in verse 3, they were of the same trade. They had a lot of background. I don't know what it's like for you when you meet somebody who you share almost every single life circumstance with and next thing you know, you're at their house and it's been too long and it's been great and you just had a great night and you're like, ah, just feel like kindred spirits. This was Paul and Aquila and Priscilla. They had much in common. But the greatest thing that they had in common came to the forefront. They shared in Christ three times Paul would later on mention Aquila and Priscilla as disciples that he greatly loved. Almost every time he finished one of his letters, he would always send a reminder, hey, say hi to Aquila and Priscilla for me. This is the clearest in Romans 16.3. He calls them my fellow workers, not in tent making, but in Christ Jesus. Aquila and Priscilla were gospel ministry partners, and Paul makes a moment several times in the New Testament to send them greetings because of his heart for them. Don't you just love it when you meet Christians for the first time and you share a lot of experiences, but the greatest thing in common that you share, you're on the same mission. You're headed to the same direction. Your hearts are attuned. It's great. It's great when you have things in common. It's great when you have the same eternal destiny. And this is reflected in the kind of hospitality and partnership that Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla displayed. It's amazing. Oh, may it be that we all, even with various circumstances and various life appointments, would still center our hearts on the same core missionality of we are here to make disciples because Jesus has found us and caused us to follow him. And may our gospel fellowship be sweet. 
But even more than that, they had gospel testimony. This is a little, the next two are kind of unclear, but this is part of why I wanted to pull this out because this comes from verse five, which again can seem like uh, a little bit of a detail drop. By the way, I feel like this entire passage is, is a little bit disconnected. It was very difficult to find out like what is Luke trying to say like, what's the one thing he's trying to say? Because it just felt like Luke was just dropping, like, name dropping here and just, like, uh, place dropping and uh, accreditation dropping. He's just like, this guy is pretty cool. Here's why. And who knows this guy? And they came from this place. And you're like, why all these details? And why are these so, con- uh, how are these so connected? Well, there's a reason. But in verse 5, we have some detail drop here, and I think it's critically important for us to see because it's behind the scenes. Verse 5, Silas and Timothy finally arrived from Macedonia. Remember, Paul had been waiting. He was waiting in Athens. He was waiting here in Corinth. And Silas and Timothy finally arrive. But he's really encouraged. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, we see why he's encouraged that they arrive. Verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and has reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long for you. Remember, Paul's talking to the Thessalonians, the church he had just ministered in. He says, Timothy has come and he has let us know of your faith and your love. So I want to keep encouraging you, brothers, he says in, in in this letter. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through faith. Paul had a great sense of testimony. He, he heard the testimony of what God was doing in other people that he had ministered with. He saw the progress that they were making in the faith, and he was encouraged in his mission. When other people are doing well in their mission, it's encouraging for us as we're stuck in our mission to hear of what God is doing in other people, that we're not just operating alone. My friends, I want to encourage you to share your gospel testimony. And I don't just mean how you were converted, though I certainly mean that. I mean how the gospel is continuing to transform you. How the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is making an impact into your daily life and struggle. How is the resurrection of Jesus giving you hope when your basement floods? We need to hear this. Why? because I'm not going through a basement flooding issue. I'm starting school and I'm having a lot of anxiety about how this school year is going to go with all these COVID policies. That's why. Like those seem interconnected. They are kind of, those seem disconnected. They are kind of, but at the core, I need to stay on track. I need to know that there's a reason that I'm going through what I'm going through. And as I serve in my particular role, and as I come to grips with the gospel in my life, I need to know that you're wrestling and struggling too. It's encouraging for me to see you struggle. Why? Because I struggle. And I need to see that. Kids, this is a good reminder for you. It was encouraging this week to have our kids be a part of our community group discussion, even for just a little bit. It was a reminder for me that, you know, as a parent, man, you know what I long to hear? I long to hear how my kids are struggling with the gospel. Why? Because I'm stuck as a parent helping to minister the gospel to them, and it's really encouraging when I hear my kids say, I'm struggling with the gospel too. Gives me strength in my struggle. My friends, I want to encourage you to share, to share what God is doing in and through you. And that doesn't mean you have your act together. A lot of it actually is a confession that you don't have your act together, but that you're leaning on Jesus. We need to hear this. He goes on in verse 8, For now we live, you are standing fast in the Lord. If we know that you're standing fast, oh man, it's like life. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? And we pray most earnestly night and day that we might see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. This is how Christian fellowship should feel. But it goes even a little bit beyond that. We see in gospel provision. Something else that can encourage us in our gospel ministry is gospel provision. We can provide and meet the needs of the saints. Again, speaking of uh, uh, Timothy and Silas coming to Paul, eventually we get in Paul's Corinthian letter uh, that Paul was somehow provided for when uh, Timothy and Silas came. They, they had some sort of provision that met Paul's need. 
Uh, Even from our passage, we see that he was working as a tent maker, and obviously he didn't want to put a burden on the church to have to provide for him, and so he makes tents. We get word that Silas and Timothy were actually uh, equipped with a, a provision from another church to help provide for Paul as he makes disciples and proclaims the gospel. And we see this in, in, uh, in Paul's account here in 2 Corinthians 11. When I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia, that's Timothy and Silas, supplied my need. And so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Gospel missionality can be encouraged, can be bolstered by having simple needs met, simple provisions that almost help life get out of the way so we can focus on ministry. I want to encourage you all. I personally have enjoyed the benefits of this throughout the last several months. God has put in my lap a couple of things that are uh, my own personal burdens and struggles that sound really cheap and funny, Uh, but are no less painful for me on a daily basis. And in the last three months, I have had three people from our church here provide in a way that was very specific and unique to help me lift a load. And you know what it's made? It's made it easier for me to pastor and to serve and to open my mouth. It's made me pray more. It's made me dig in a little bit more. Why? Because God provided for me in a way that was tangible through you all. And first and foremost, I want to say thank you, but I also want to say keep it up. Not for me, for for others as well. There are people in this room who need you to come and and do, do amazing, tangible things for that might seem mundane, and they probably are, but things that just help lift the load so that life can kind of get out of the way and we can focus on ministry. Those things are important. Those things make a difference. And when you give, it helps just push a saint down the road. I want to encourage you to keep that up. Paul mentions the same gift in Philippians 4, the famous passage where he eventually will uh, say, my God supplies all of my needs. We know that this is ultimately God's work. And so friends, though none of us can control gospel ministry, we can't control and manipulate, we can't, can't even control and manipulate the circumstances of our life, we can minister with grace and encouragement. That is one thing that we can control. We can lift a load, we can provide for one another, we can share how God is helping us in our understanding of the gospel, and we can fellowship with one another, not based on merely the facts and circumstances of life, but on the central message of the cross. And in this way, we can have a bunch of encouraged saints. It's an amazing gift. We can't control these things, but we do know one who is in control of gospel mission. And even as we encourage one another, that doesn't make ministry altogether easy. And it doesn't mean dark things go away. And it doesn't mean that there isn't a struggle. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Oh, well. You know, you get number four a little early. Sometimes that just happens. But even when ministry gets hard, even when number fours show up before number ones, even in the middle of the fellowship and the provision and the testimonies, it's still challenging, isn't it? And it's hard for us to know really who's in control but we see it very clearly in this passage. Jesus is still in control of his mission. This is a borrowed mission. Our church's mission is a borrowed mission. It's Jesus's holistically, not Jesus's in part. This isn't Jesus's 50% of his mission and 50% our mission. This is 100% Jesus's mission. And the delight is we get to find ourselves as agents or just partners in it. People who have just been given in it just to share God is happy to use us, but it isn't because of us. We know this. But even when we mess up and we feel insecure as are we doing what we should be doing? Are we staying on track? It's helpful to rest in the fact that this is all his mission. And so we can join in his mission because God is in control of several things. Let's look at those real quick. God is in control 
as hard as it is to wrap our mind around, of those who reject him. Remember I talked about fear. One of our biggest fears is that when we present the gospel, especially to people that we love, will they continue to reject us? My friends, God's in control of that. It's a burden that we often take upon our own souls, isn't it? God delights to give us that mission to share. But it's not your burden to bear. And that's hard, isn't it? Because again, up to you and me, we want to control that. If we had the keys to that Corvette, we would drive it. But my friend, it's not your keys. They're Jesus' keys. We see this in verse 6. Remember, Paul has a heart for these Jews. He, ha- he, he knows them because he was one. He knows what it's like. He knows what they're wrestling with and what they're struggling. They're his kindred people. In verse 6, they opposed him. And they reviled him. And he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Eerie words from Paul, words that echo of Ezekiel 25, words that often as well echo Jesus' own words in Matthew 10, 14, and even words that were just talked about when Paul uh, was going through Berea, in, uh, excuse me, in Antioch in chapter 13. He used this same phrase, he shook the dust uh, off of his sandals. We might kind of have a colloquial phrase that we say, we, we wash our hands of it, or rinse the blood off of our hands is the idea. What's that insinuating? We're, we're no longer guilty. We're no longer responsible. We are done with it. And you say, is that the right response? Well, I, to be honest, I, I don't know. And it's, that's, that's a very challenging thing for any of us to say, much less to hear from Paul that he would just walk away. But also, I know very, very few people who would be at the same level of, of hatred and hostility as these people here. Remember, this is, this is physical opposition and physical revilement. Right? This, is, this would be true persecution. And in that sense, which I, I have never faced that kind of opposition, so it would be hard for me to, to say that this is, unwrong of Paul to do, especially when Jesus says, once you hear this kind of rejection, just know that you're eventually just going to have to be done with it and chalk it up to the sovereignty of God. So I want to single-handedly keep pushing you into share the gospel. Keep sharing the gospel. I'm not asking you to be jerks or even get them to the point where they want to punch you in the face. I don't think that's the point. But I think we continue to share the gospel in clear ways that helps people to understand where their idols are and where their destiny is headed. And naturally, you've been there before, I've been there before. We don't like our idols poked and prodded with. We don't like our own eternal destinies shaped. So we get angry and hostile. But being on the other side of that, the fear that comes out of that or the guilt or the shame that comes out of that, can be heart-wrenching. And I know a lot of saints who are paralyzed to share and to join in the gospel mission because they don't want to face the rejection. In in many ways, the idea or the, the impetus behind their struggle is, well, I don't want to make it worse. My friends, I get that. It's a real struggle. But my friends, it's not yours to bear. Jesus commands us to shake the dust off of our feet knowing that people will reject because he knows the truth. Only Jesus can bear up under the weight of souls. Which is good news for you. He can bear up under the weight of your soul. He can bear up under the weight of souls of the people that you love and that you want to hear the gospel. Jesus is strong enough and kind enough to handle those souls. And you say, well, what will happen if they reject? As hard as it is to imagine that and to face that reality, there is justice in the hand of God, but my friend, there's also kindness 
There's also patience. There's long-suffering. And in that patience and long-suffering, he commands you as an agent of his gospel to share it. You are an extension of his patience. And so I want to continue to urge you to keep sharing the gospel. You say, but what if? I can't control what if. And you can't either. But we can trust the heart of a Savior. He says in 2 Peter 3 that God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We can trust the heart of the Savior. Which means you don't have to go to bed feeling and heaping on the guilt and shame of somebody not responding to the gospel. My friend, Jesus takes that burden from your soul and says it's not yours to bear. That is good news that Jesus is sovereign over those who reject him. But also, Jesus is sovereign over those who believe. Jesus is sovereign even over the Freds. This comes from verses 7 through 11. After that uh, confrontation with the Jews, verse 7, he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue, so praise God he didn't have that far to go. It's nice. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. What an amazing story. Down in verse 10, in the vision that God gave Paul in the night, for I am with you, no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. You begin to see more of the scope of God's grace begin to rub out. Another concentric circle rubbed out. First of all, he calls Titius Justice, this worshiper of God, yet it's, it's amazing. Another person who worships God but clearly didn't know Jesus, a reminder for us as religious people, we can worship God and yet still not know the Savior. It's possible. Here, he's confronted and goes to his house, becomes a, a worshiper. This actually uh, could be could be Gaius from 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, if you remember in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, Crispus and Gaius uh, were actually uh, linked together in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, Paul, if you, if you remember from 1 Corinthians, they're having this huge like mascot debate, like, we love Paul, and like, we love Barnabas, and everyone's like, we love Jesus, and they're like, and Paul's like, nah, like, we're not mascots here, we don't wear t-shirts, these aren't flag-wearing things here, and he's like, I'm actually really proud of the fact that I haven't baptized any of you except Gaius and Crispus, that's kind of the context for that, for that phrase. Uh, So we have here at least an admission that he baptized Gaius and Crispus, which that may be Titius Justice. We don't know, but it's it's just passed around. That may be, maybe eventually he got called Gaius. We don't know. But there's Crispus, who's the ruler of a synagogue, a devout Jew. So we have a devout Roman Gentile, and then we have a devout Roman, uh, a devout uh, Jewish leader here in the synagogue. He believed in the Lord. So on opposite sides of the spectrum, religious, he comes to the Lord, he and his entire household, a ruler of the synagogue. That's amazing someone who really had to fall off quite a high ladder. Jesus knocked him down. What an amazing story there. His entire household. Oh, and don't forget, many of the Corinthians, many who were engaged in practices that even from 1 Corinthians that we would say are even in the world's eyes heinous and scandalous. Many of the Corinthians came to know Jesus. And Jesus says in a vision to Paul, I have many right here in this city, in this one, that are my people. Another good reminder that Jesus is a friend of sinners. But he's totally sovereign over those who believe. And you can imagine the kind of mess that would come out of a church situation like this. You, have to, you just read 1 Corinthians and you're like, yeah, it got real messy real quick. Real quick. In fact, we don't get a messier church in the Bible than this one. But it's a good reminder that that's not unlike every other church experience. That's like every church experience if it's done well, if it's done right. 
Again, if we're friends of sinners and friends of the blindly religious and friends of the legalists, my friends, church will be a messy business. And I praise God in one sense when I have to wrestle with how are we going to get all these people in one room together? How are we going to do this? This person believes this. This person has this kind of principle involved. How are we going to do this? You know what stresses me out the most in regards to this? COVID stuff. How are we going to do it? Honestly, it's best to just put my blinders on and just ignore, nothing exists. It's all, it's, all, it's all a lie. You can't do that. And so my friends, if done well, if we believe that Jesus is sovereign over the church who come to believe, then we can imagine all sorts of people having to come into one room. And so the assumption is, the assumption is, if we believe the gospel, that church is a messy business, but it's Jesus' mess. Church is messy, but it's Jesus' mess. And he wouldn't have it any other way. We, we have to understand that. And I'm not calling us for us to make more of a mess. We're doing just fine. We don't need to make more of a mess, but we do need to understand that this isn't what we are doing. I, I didn't bring you all in. Other churches, that pastor didn't bring them in. Jesus brought them in. And if that's true, then we say this is Jesus' mess, and he cares very much about it. So we should too. We should get messy. We should dive right in. Use gloves if you have to. I don't care. Get in there. Don't shy away from it. It's not going to fix itself. We jump right in. We confront the mess with our own messiness and the strength of Jesus. The mess is what Jesus promised would prevail against the gates of hell. Let me say that again. This mess is what Jesus promised would prevail against the gates of hell. Let that sink in. What would prevail against Satan and all of his hosts? Really strong, great people? No. Jesus says the mess is going to do that. This raggly group of renegades, Jesus is going to lead that host against hell and it's going to win. Which means we must have a, we must have a mighty Savior, don't we? We must have a very powerful God on our side. Just look at Israel's history for more pictures of that story. My friends, he's sovereign over people sitting right next to you. He's sovereign over people coming to your community group. He's sovereign over people who will walk in the door. We can say, we can point to marketing strategies or we can point to uh, church guru tactics, but none of that really matters when we understand that God is sovereign and he draws people. When we believe that, it's a game changer and we welcome the mess and say, welcome, this is Jesus's. This is not mine. I'm, I'm willing to get dirty with you no matter how dirty it is because guess what? You're going to have to get dirty with me. I have messed too. Number three, Jesus is sovereign over our lives. And you say, how messy does it get? Pretty. Pretty messy. And it means that we're going to have to wrestle even to the point of death with each other. It may get that hard. It may get that challenging. It may get to that point. And in many ways, I kind of would praise God for those moments when the church really had to wrestle with bigger problems than just who's going to wear a mask and who's not. That's not, that's not an ultimate problem. The church in Afghanistan, that's an ultimate problem. And if God is not sovereign over our lives, if, they can't, if his sovereignty and his care for us can't, can't get us right up to that line, we're about to take our last breath, then my friend, what are we doing? But praise God, it does. Even beyond it. We have this in verse 9 and 10. Paul, uh, the Lord says to Paul, don't be afraid. Whatever's going to happen next, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. 
don't be afraid. An easy reason for Paul to be afraid, is he going to make it? Is this his last stop? Is this where the mission ends? He didn't know. And Jesus says, keep on. Keep going. Why? Because I'm sovereign over your life. And if I can keep people from touching your life, then I can also make people touch your life. And it's okay. He's sovereign over our lives, and he can make us dwell in safety, or he can make us dwell in hardship, as Paul very much knows. He knew that whatever state he was in, to be content. He knew how to be made low. He knew how to deal with a lot. He knew how to deal with a little. It's what the gospel trained him to do, and yet we find that this is true over our lives as well. And yet Jesus' presence ensures his sovereignty. He says, I am with you. You're not alone. No one's going to harm you, but I make a personal, uh, I am personally making a commitment to you. I'll be with you in those moments. And you can say, well, did God leave him when he was beaten half to death? No, God was there too. He was, he was right there too. My friends, we have to understand we have to understand that part of following Jesus is entrusting our lives to the Father's power. Let me say that again. It is part of following Jesus to entrust our lives to the Father's power. I don't know if we talk about this too much. But it is important for you to understand that part of following Jesus is understanding he can control when you take your last breath. He's the one who gets to set that standard. Your life is his. You also get to recognize that even if he were to summon your last breath, that that wouldn't be your final breath. That you would live again that this passing life is just one of the lives that we have. We have an eternal life in the backdrop of our hearts and souls going on right now that will go on forever, that death itself cannot destroy. And so if Jesus were lead to lead you through the valley of the shadow of death, at this point, like Paul, you don't have to fear any evil. Why? He is with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. And one day you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why are you afraid? And you say, but that's a big deal. It's my life. No, it's, it's not your life. It's your father's life. Or you could say it's Jesus' life just running through your veins. It's not the life you have right here now. It's Jesus' life living through you. So my friends, don't be afraid. Stay on mission. And understand that his presence is what ensures his sovereignty. Whatever you're facing, it's okay. He's with you. You say, well, is it out of control? No, he's with you. He made it happen. He's watching over it. You can't, you can't escape his sovereign hand. He's standing right next to us. He is dwelling in us through the Spirit. It's okay. Paul's assured in this moment that no harm will have him, but in other moments, he's not assured of that. And yet he must go on. The mission still goes on. We'll see in a little bit later, Sosthenes did not have that assurance. And yet the mission still stands. My friends, Jesus is in control of your life. It's impossible to follow Jesus without entrusting your life to him. Your actual life. Not just your spiritual one. Your actual life. This is what Jesus says, right? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. I don't, think he's, I don't think he's joking. I don't think he's messing around saying like, you know, your proverbial cross. No, I think he's actually saying you have to give up rights to your life. The Father controls your destiny. Praise God, sin and death don't actually have a say. Jesus does. So it's going to be okay. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will surely find it. My friends, the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to save yourself. That's what this ensures. So giving your last breath, giving that power over to the Father ensures that you don't have to control and command your life the way you want it to, which frees you up big time. You can toss your anxiety right out the window 
you can look at COVID and smile. Don't be dumb. You know, like YOLO, right? YODO as well. You only die once. So hang in there. But what I'm saying is like, you don't have to be dumb about it. My friend, that's not the final life you're ever going to live. So what if, what if the father decides that tonight's it? Right? It's okay. We'll see you in heaven. Let us know how it is. Rest? Sounds wonderful. Entrust it to him. You don't have to save yourself, and that's what the gospel affords us. Finally, it's already up there. God is in control of gospel expansion. We get this from verses 12 and 17. Little, a little hidden. Gallio, the proconsul. Remember, this is a very similar situation to Paul in Thessalonica uh, from chapter 17 early on. Remember the Jews, they come to the powers that be and they say, hey, uh, these Christians are doing something brand new. Like we Jews, we, you know, we get to kind of write it off because you, you Romans allow us to do what we do. But this new Christianity thing is a brand new religion and we know how you don't like brand new religions. I think you should make a stop to it. This is that same scenario. And earlier, if you remember, uh, the, the Thessalonian powers that be there said, yeah, you Christians have to stop. And remember, Jason got involved. They couldn't find uh, the disciples. And so they dragged Jason in. Jason went to jail. And finally, Jason paid. They got their money and they let him off the hook. This is the same situation, except uh, here we have a little bit different scenario. Gallio was basically like, I'm not dealing with that. I'm not stepping into that. This, Jews, this is about whatever you guys want to say. I'm not into that. So you guys make up your own jurisdiction and uh, go on. You say, like, well, what's significant about that? What's significant is that this no doubt set a precedent for Christianity to really flourish in Roman provinces. This was a big deal for Christianity to begin to have freedom and extend uh, beyond Roman borders into places uh, without this kind of persecution at bay. So it's really quite a big deal. We don't really know how big of a deal it was because it didn't happen. Uh, but we can see really the gospel flourishing and this allowing the gospel to go out in peace. It's a cool moment for the church. But kind of like with Jason, it came with the price. And so we see the gospel expanding. We see God using this man, Gallio, in his sovereign ways to be able to bring about gospel expansion, but it also, yet again, came at great cost. In verse 17, I, technic- I believe Sosthenes is actually um, a, 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 a Christian, uh, a, a convert to, to Christianity, uh, but yet he is the, the ruler of the synagogue there, probably following Crispus, uh, which is kind of an amazing story. Two rulers of the synagogues back-to-back converting to Christianity. In 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul would actually begin his letter, Paul, an apostle of God in Christ Jesus, writing to the church in Corinth, Paul and also our brother Sosthenes. He includes Sosthenes as like we're writing this together. Whether Sosthenes was a scribe or what he was to help Paul in the Corinthian letter, we don't necessarily know, but it's important to know that I think, it's not important to know because we don't really know, but I think he actually was a convert, which is why they went after him in verse 17. They see Sosthenes, probably the guy that they could pick on the clearest because he was a leader of the synagogue and probably a Christian sympathizer. So Sosthenes pays with some persecution, but really the gospel is allowed to expand. My friends, that's something that we can't control either. We can't control what's going to happen here in this country. We can't control what's going to happen with our, with our globe. But we can be reminded that this is not our mission anyway. This isn't the church in the United States' mission. This isn't even really the church's mission all across the globe. This is Jesus's mission that he signed with his own blood. And so if he wants it to go, it'll go. If he wants it to slow down, it'll slow down. But make no bones about it, it will succeed however he wants it to succeed. The resurrection of Jesus ensures that nothing will get in the way of Jesus's mission. Nothing. Sin? Nope. Death? Nope. Jesus's mission rolls on. We see that because of the living Jesus. It's more powerful than anything. Jesus' sovereignty is over everything. And my friends, this is the very reason that Jesus would say in his vision to Paul, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why would you need to be afraid? I'm sovereign over people who would reject all this. I'm sovereign over people who believe. I'm sovereign over you and your life. 
and I'm sovereign over this entire mission. Don't be afraid, but go on speaking. And so that's really the vision for us here tonight, that we would check our fears to the sovereignty of the king who has been raised from the dead, and we would go on speaking, knowing and believing that he is being patient with us, even to people in this city. We believe that this is a work that Jesus has started up. And so we believe that there are people right around us who need to hear the gospel. Will they respond? I don't know. Jesus is sovereign over that. Will they believe? I don't know. Jesus is sovereign over that. Well, are we going to make it? Are we going to be okay? I don't know. Jesus is sovereign over that. Is the gospel going to expand here? Are we going to be the only church? Will we even be the church here? I don't know. Jesus is sovereign over that but I can speak without fear today. And so can you. So let's stick to it. Let's pray. of